This even surprised Ananias. We're going to spend some time speaking about Paul's and his conversion a little bit tonight, but as we go into this, and I'll explain as we go, today I'm going to speak about the story that's before us. It's a, it's a straightforward narrative. It moves very quickly, very rapidly from Paul persecuting to Paul's salvation to Paul proclaiming. That's the way it goes. Real quick. Boom. 20 verses of scripture. We see a man hating the church. 19 verses later, guess what? He's proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. Real quick. But it's going to take me some time to really speak about the personal fruit of grace in his life. That's important. We're going to see Paul's personal autobiographical sketch. It's peppered throughout his letters and what he thought about himself prior to Christ. We're going to see what Christ has done to him. We're going to see a fanatic for the traditions of the Father so much that he would kill in the name of God. And we're going to see what transformed on the inside, the chiefest of sinners. The text tonight really doesn't capture the enormity of what God has done for this man. We sit back and if you don't know Paul, you don't know his epistles, you don't understand grace, and you heard the story for the first time, you might say, wow, but you might say, oh, all right, another conversion. But no, no, no. Make no mistake about it. This is, this is incredible. And Paul even says to Timothy, God has saved me as an example to those who will be saved by grace. Mm. The great patience of God. Mm. So I don't want to run through this, but I do want to take a look at the conversion. But it's not going to take one sermon. I'll have to spend a couple of times on this as we go through Paul's letters and see his order by air. How he saw it through his own eyes. But tonight's story does give us some insight. I want you to think about something. I think like this. You've got to follow along with me. I'm sorry. Because my mind is going from one side to the other. Luke, the historian, is writing about Paul's conversion. Not much is known about Luke. We know he's a companion of Paul. But Luke doesn't come into the picture to Acts chapter 16. Between Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 9 is probably 20 years. We don't know when Luke was converted. There's a good chance he was converted under Paul's preaching. But if not, he was introduced to Paul early on when Paul went into his second missionary trip. Think about the night that Paul told Luke before I was Paul I was Saul. Let me tell you, Luke, because you're writing this, this historical account of Christianity. Let me tell you who I was. This is like a pastor. You know, you, you hear a pastor preach for years and years, and all of a sudden you finally hear the testimony of the minister, and you say, oh, my God. That's who you were? Luke must have had that experience with Paul. Luke must have sat back one day and said, You persecuted the church. You, you who teach in depth on the body of Christ. You who teach there's many members in one body. You who taught me to love one another. You persecuted the church. 
Luke is writing Paul's personal testimony. Luke is putting down how the gospel got from Jerusalem to Rome and all around the world. How God chose this instrument, this persecutor of the church, to be his chosen vessel to carry the message of Jesus Christ. From an historian's point of view, this is incredible to be hearing this story firsthand from the apostle. The introduction of Saul in these verses go to show a religious fanatic. As we can see in Galatians 1.14, I'll just touch upon that tonight just for a moment. He was blinded by extreme zeal for the traditions of the fathers. Listen to this. Right into the Galatians. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the what? Traditions, Traditions of the fathers. You see, he was not blinded by Old Testament truth. He was not blinded by what the prophets taught in the Old Testament. No, 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 no. He was blinded by what men made of the truth. Understand something. Man took the Old Testament religion that pointed to the Messiah and made it to traditions of men. They camped around it and they thought it was the end itself. They did not realize that the Old Testament prophets were just a means to an end. Judaism was a means to an end. Judaism was put in place to point men to the Messiah when he came. To birth the Messiah. But the traditions of men could not see that no more. They made it a religion and they said, we are the end. The traditions of men. He was blinded by this. He was infuriated that anybody would speak against their ancestral religion. That's what ignorance does. It was Judaism separated from the coming of the Messiah, realizing that Judaism was still waiting for a new covenant. They studied the scriptures, but they could not see the truth because they were blinded by zealous traditions. Think about it. I was Roman Catholic. People would go to church, nobody would speak about Jesus. Nobody would pray. Nobody would read their Bible. But if you spoke against it, <laughs> they get it. So extremely zealous for the traditions of the fathers. It's family religion. It's empty and it's dangerous. And Paul knew this. He was blinded by zealous traditions of men it, 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 it was bringing nobody closer to God. It was just there. Nobody was asking the questions. You know, Mom, why do we believe in this? You know, you couldn't even open up your mouth to talk about God. You, why, am I, why am I eating this little wafer that says made in China on it? Would somebody tell me why this means anything to God? Why am I pointed to Mary and told to pray? 
Why, why is it? Why do I kneel ten times? Don't say anything. It's the traditions of the fathers. Nope. Am I right? God forbid you, you talk about it. Why are we doing these things? But that's what it does. That's what it did to Paul. And now somebody was bringing that to an end. This Christian church that's called The Way. And he was infuriated. And took it upon himself to stamp it out. Even violently. This is why Jesus says you cannot put new wine into old wineskins. I got saved in a Pentecostal church and all I was taught was that was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and some kind of personal manifestation of God in my heart and that you know God had to do this periodically within the church and periodically within my own life and I found out that that's not true. New wine into old wineskins is what Jesus is saying. The prophet Jeremiah said that a new covenant is coming and it has nothing to do with the old covenant. When the new covenant comes, the old covenant goes, period. There's no mingling of the two. The book of Galatians, the book of Philippians deals with this. The book of Hebrews deals with this. The whole New Testament deals with it. Judaism is over. The temple is over. The greater temple has come. The law of Moses is over because it's written on the heart. The age of the spirit has come. The Old Testament is over. Let's worship God in spirit and in Messiah has come. They couldn't see that because they had the traditions of the fathers. So when the life in the spirit comes, when Messiah comes, they, they can't see it. They're blinded by zeal for... They don't even know. Ignorance. This is what we're fighting here. This is what Paul is doing. He's on a murderous rampage trying to, to put out single-handedly what God is doing in the hearts of people. The new covenant has come. The temple's over. Moses is over. And no one's going to expound on the law in its proper place greater and more mightier than the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul single-handedly put the law in its place. He says it simple. The law saves no one. Righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. Amen. That's it. It's all. You can't have both. Historically, our story in Acts is about the gospel of Jesus going out to Jerusalem. We've been following this. We're following it from Jerusalem. We're, we're following it going to the rest of the world. We saw last week how it even made it to the furthest reaches of the known world to the south. That was the Ethiopian eunuch who got saved. That represented the furthest reaches of the known world to the Jew. We saw that it went to Samaria, Judea. Now it's going to the outermost parts of the world. We know that through persecution, the gospel is starting to spread now. Now we're going to see God take a fanatic persecutor and single-handedly convert him. And at the same time, God's going to use him to reveal his son to the Gentiles. It's an amazing twist of faith. It's an amazing. Little did he know what he was going to do. What's going to happen to him that day? Little did Paul understand. We see 
that Paul's ministry now, which we get a glimpse over here, this is his conversion. We see him proclaiming in the synagogues in Damascus that Jesus is the Son of God. All of a sudden, he fades out a little bit. We have a little more Jerusalem Peter stuff. Chapter 11, we're going to see Paul again just for a little cameo. He's going to disappear. Then in chapter 13, the ministry of Paul to the Gentiles takes over the rest of the book. It's a mild introduction. All right? So textually, that's what's going on here. But let me go to the text. I'm just going to explain it and then speak about some application. I'm only going to read verses 1 and 2 and then explain 20 verses. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The persecution that began with Stephen's death, which spread the word to Samaria, then to the southernmost parts of the known world, the Ethiopia, is now in full throttle in Jerusalem. Persecution is gone mad. The persecutor, I should say, has gone mad. Paul is going from house to house, dragging men and women bound to prison. He decides now to go to Damascus, which is 150 miles away from Jerusalem. It was a metropolis. Uh, it was in southern Syria. And, and it was a, a true cosmopolitan type of city. It was, it was very diversified. There was Jew, there was Gentiles, there was different religions over there. There was a lot of commerce going on. It was, it was an active city, a swollen city of all different ethnicities and backgrounds and when the persecution started in, ch in, in chapter 8, the, the gospel got there. Some time has lapsed between chapter 8, verse 1, and chapter 9, verse 1. We don't know. It could be months, most likely years. We don't know how many. But by that time, the gospel has got to Damascus, 150 miles away. There was a big Jewish population. Men like Ananias were coming to faith in Christ. They knew Christ. They were sharing Christ. There was a Christian community that was starting to thrive in that area. And Paul hears about this 150 miles away. And he, he's got to get there. He's got to get there. Why? Because he's so zealous for the traditions of the Father. He has to single-handedly wipe out the Christian church. Think about it. Yeah. And now he's emboldened with the authority of the Sadducees to go up there in the high priest and bound them hand and foot, man or woman, and bring him to Jerusalem to stand trial. Or give him a chance to what? We can't. He's not the son of God. He didn't want to hear this son of God anymore. He didn't want to hear about this persecuted criminal from Galilee who was nothing more than a carpenter putting himself off as the son of God. He didn't want to hear it no more. He couldn't hear the son of God anymore. Because if the Son of God is here, there's no more temple, there's no more law, there's no more festivals, there's no more circumcision, there's no more old covenant. He has to wipe out the way. He heard about the way. That's what Christians were known as. The way. And right outside of Damascus, 150 miles, fuming on the inside, 
could not wait to rip men and women out of their houses. So extremely blinded and zealous he was for the traditions of the father. Couldn't wait. He could see Damascus right around the horizon in the light shone. Jesus shows up just in the nick of time. His dazzling light blinds the pride of Paul. And with extreme tenderness, this is what gets me when I read the text. With extreme patience and tenderness, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What's amazing here is the absence of any harsh criticism or sense of fear by Paul. Don't miss it. Jesus is the one feeling the pain. Why do you persecute me? I'm the one who's feeling the pain. You would think there's some harsh words. You would think there'd be some criticism. But no. This is converted. This is just truth in love. He doesn't need to show anger towards Paul. He doesn't need to wave his finger at him. Just simply, why are you persecuting me? What have I done? What have I done to you? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, who you are persecuting Think of that moment, what must have taken place in the apostle's mind. This religious, young, superstar, Pharisee, rising up through the ranks, being more zealous than everybody else his age, he was proving a point that I'm more zealous than anybody else for the traditions of the Father, and there he is on his way, and, and all of a sudden he's apprehended by the love of Christ. The very one is persecuted. The very name he cannot hear. The very concept of he's the son of God. He doesn't want nothing to do with it. He's the one he sees visually. That's why you have to go into the epistles, which we will do, to see the great impact this had on Paul's life. I think of first, Second Corinthians chapter 5, where he says... Uh, I have, I've have concluded this, Paul says, that if one man should die, that all should live, then all those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died and rose again. He says, the love of Christ constrains me. Paul never got this out of his mind. The rest of his life and the rest of his ministry, he never forgot who he was at the moment of conversion. How do we forget what Christ has done? How do we forget? How can I for a moment forget who I was that day when I walked into that church 27 years ago? And I just was, I wasn't there to get saved. Paul wasn't going to Damascus to get saved. I wasn't there because I had a longing to know God. I could have cared less. I was filled with traditions of men. I didn't ask the big question. But I went because my wife invited me. And my sister-in-law was there. And there it was when the music started to play. He apprehended my heart. 
What am I going to tell you? I can't forget who I was then. I know what was in my heart. I know the anger and the prejudice and the lust, the lying and the cheating and the stealing. I know what was waging war within me. How do we not change? What more lessons do we need to learn? We see him here humbly just saying, yes, Lord. Jesus gives his first orders. Go into the city. Go into the city and wait. Just wait. Didn't tell him anything. Just go into the city. Blind and helpless, relying on others to bring him about. For the first time in his life, he's powerless. Powerless. For the first time in his life, he had to rely on other human beings. Three days he did not eat, nor did he drink. To highlight the seriousness of this reflective prayer he's going to, he probably looked like a babbling madman. Probably nobody went near him. It would take Paul... Paul never came to grips with this incredible love of God towards him. He accepted it. But as we go through his epistles, and I'm not painting a a wrong picture of a man who hated himself by no stretch of the imagination. He fully understood he is what he is by God's grace. Period. But Paul is as human as me and you. And Paul, how many times did Paul think by that young man being stoned to death while he gave the okay. How many times he could see the faces of people being dragged out of their families and into prison. That's why Paul can say, I'm the chiefest of sinners. It would take a lifetime of personal study for us through Paul's epistles. Just to grasp the magnitude of these first few days of this, this, this man's whole transformation. And that's what I want to get into over the weeks now. I don't want to just try to squeeze something into a sermon because what he says about himself is, is worthy of personal study. It's worthy to bring into the pulpit, to change our hearts. While Paul is waiting, he has a vision of a man. A man named Ananias coming laying hands on him and praying that he receive his sight. Saul just sits there helpless, destitute of any self-reliance whatsoever. And at the same time, a disciple named Ananias has a similar vision. But this man is reluctant at first, as I explained earlier. But Jesus explains the Saul, Jesus explains Saul's commission. Even before Saul had any idea what was taking place. Ananias knew he 
He was called to be a herald of the gospel and to suffer for the name of Christ. So obediently he goes. He embraces Saul as a brother in Christ. He lays hands on him. He prays that Jesus give him back his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He is filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately something like scales falls off his eyes and for the first time he truly sees and understands God. Do you remember when you were born again? Do you really remember the time, that season? Maybe you can go back the day. I remember the day. I can remember what happened. I share it often from this pulpit. When I left church that day, there's three things I knew. Jesus Christ is God. My sins are forgiven. And the Bible is the word of God. That was it. That owned me and still does. Never wrestled with any one of those truths. Ever. That's what God does. Immediately his blindness was over. He's in the light. Ananias and the disciples, he's going to spend some time with him. He's going to sort of speak him down off the ledge and explain to him the grace of God. He eats, he drinks, he's acquainted for a time with the new brothers. And immediately he goes and proclaims Jesus as the Son of God. The filling of the Spirit and the proclaiming of the Son should not be overlooked. These are two how can I say, pillars of Paul's theology and his philosophy of ministry. With these two New Testament fulfillments, these two New Testament reality, Paul begins his ministry. These fulfillments consume most of his theology when you study his 13 epistles, his philosophy of ministry. This means this. Why does anybody do anything for God? Why did Paul preach the gospel? Why did Paul go into hostile territory? Why did Christ, why did Paul suffer so much for Christ in the gospel? Because the love of God constrains me. That's what he didn't say, well, I'm an apostle. Long before Paul calls himself an apostle, you know what he calls himself? A servant of Jesus Christ. Apostle of The giving of the Spirit, which represents the whole new covenant, the whole new work of God. The giving of the Son of God to pay for the new covenant in his blood is all anyone ever needs to live for God. That's why he can say the temple's over, Moses is over, the festivals are over, because if the love of God doesn't do it for you, nothing ever can. Nothing ever can. Me and John had to hear one day how somebody left the church because we speak too much about the gospel. <laughs> too much. Too much about the gospel. Too much about the crucifixion. Too much about the cross is what they say. Think about it. I think the answer we gave, well, if you got something better, let us know. What else is there? 
Well, what do you want me to tell you? The Spirit's doing something over here, and the Spirit's doing something over here. If he's doing anything, he's pointing to Jesus and the cross. Amen. That's all he does. He comes to testify not of himself, but of me. If you need anything more than the Spirit of God and the crucifixion of the Son of God, there's something wrong. Amen. I'm telling you now, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with your teaching, your theology, or your heart. Nothing, if Christ shedding his blood has not captured your affections, if Christ dying on the cross hasn't captured your very life, nothing ever will. If Christ crucified doesn't heal the marriage, nothing will. If Christ crucified doesn't take away the addiction, nothing will. If Christ crucified doesn't give you forgiveness in your heart, nothing will. If Christ crucified doesn't put you on a new path, nothing will. If Christ crucified doesn't make you happy, you'll never be happy. Ever. Don't look anywhere. Look to that's where all your happiness is. That's where your new life is. That's where hope is. That's where peace is. That's where you bring your tears. That's where you bring your brokenness. That's where you bring your burden. Paul knew this. And he built his whole ministry on these two truths. And that's what we do here. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. It's what we build this ministry on. The word of God. The cross of Christ. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit. To change a leper's spot. To bring a new heart. And take away the old heart store. Application. First application. Unfortunately, the traditions of men are as much alive today and a hindrance to the real Jesus as ever before in human history. The proverbial, I'm this, I'm good, I'm, uh, uh, I'm orthodox, I'm Catholic, I'm this. I'm, the traditions, the traditions, this ancestral religion is still alive and active today. The blind will leave the blind. They'll both fall into the pit. They worship me with traditions. They're worshiping me with the traditions of men and not with their hearts. They're teaching as the word of God the traditions of men. All around us, people get this close to Christ but cannot see him because of tradition. Family traditions. Jesus says it best. If you do not love me more than mother or father or brother and sister, if you don't love me more than the traditions of men, the traditions of your family, you have nothing to do with me. I don't think a lot of people take that real serious. I don't think people really see the trap they're caught into. Ancestral religion blinds people to the reality of the Son of God and the Spirit of God. Probably most of us at one time, we're probably not there today, but we might have came out of that. But you know what we got to be careful of today? We got to be careful of turning this relationship with God in 
into just showing up. Sort of a showing up Christianity. You now, Pastor, I'm just doing the best I can. Just, I'm showing up. Doing the best I can. Christ died for a relationship. He came here. The Father gave Christ, gave you to Christ as a bride. Christ hands us back to the Father. It's about a relationship. It's about the enjoyment of God. Please understand me. If you would have never fallen to the sins of your past again, but you were still cold on the inside to the affections of God, we're missing it. We're missing it. And we're just as cold as the traditions of men. If I lost my zeal of telling others about Christ, I can actually, you know how I can tell you, you know, you know, this is how we know if I'm not sharing the gospel. Are you sure you can handle it? Tell me, oh, Pastor, I'm not too sure. That's me. <coughs> I want to I give it to you right between you. <laughs> Once you stop praying for people's souls, you stop witnessing. That's it. Because if you're witnessing and not praying for souls, you're not witnessing. You're a sounding gong and a clanging cymbal. That's all we are. If I have not loved, that's all I am. Let's not fall into some kind of New Testament traditions of men. We can do it. You can do it. I can do it. We can get called individual. We can get called as a church. We got to be careful. Me and my wife just the other day, we got on our knees. Why? Because... I felt we were getting cold even in the marriage. Just a little bit. You know, it was like, she's busy and I'm busy and I'm distracted. She's distracted and it's like, all of a sudden, you know, you can bite and devour one another. I'm like, what are we doing? Yeah. Life is too short. I'm 56 years old. I don't want to fight another day with someone I love. I can't do it. God help us was our prayer. And she goes, what, what do we do now? <laughs> well, we were worship. We were fighting and worshiping the Lord at the same time, right? We had the music in the car. Yay! Worship the Lord. I simply said, "We're doing it, honey. We're praying and we're worshiping. That's all God wants us to do. God takes care of us." Are you with me? Yeah. Let's be careful. Let's be careful. We get our eyes off of Christ because anything can happen once our eyes are off Christ. Number two, we can never forget what we were when we came to Christ. It is the door of gratitude that our salvation swings on. It's, it, it, it's sanctification changes, it, I should say, our whole life. Being filled with the Spirit, being joyful about our salvation, letting the joy of the Lord be our strength, is, is, is directly involved with I'll be grateful to Christ for what he has done. I never want to forget what I was going through in my life when I walked into that church for that first time. Because I can tell you now, I was an animal on the inside. I could have never been the husband God wanted me to be. I could have never been a son that God wanted me to be. I could have never been a friend. And I certainly would not be standing here encouraging other people in the Lord. Think about it for a moment. Where were you before you got saved? What was going on in your mind? What were the 
the battles, the moral battles that were going on? What were the fears that were taking place? What was, what was consuming you then that's not there now because of Christ? Number three, conversion is God's prerogative, not man's. Paul wasn't going to a revival meeting. Paul wasn't going to church. He wasn't going to have a cup of coffee with somebody and speak about salvation in Christ. He hated everything Christian. He hated everything God. He hated everything Christ. He hated everything redemption. He hated everything the Trinity. He wanted nothing to do with it but stamp it out. And yet he was saved by the grace of God. Make no mistake about it. Salvation is all the work of God. Period. Remember, this gives us hope for anybody. This gives us hope for anybody. Anyone. I'm not going to tell you that there's an Apostle Paul being saved every hour. Every conversion has the same features, the same dynamics. God draws us to the Son. Paul never saw that he was being drawn to Damascus. God didn't say, you know something? Paul's on the road to Damascus. Hmm. I guess I'll have to save him. No. God put it in his heart. Go to Damascus. Persecute the saints because on the way I'm going to save you. That's how I'm drawing you to myself. You want to kill people? Get on the road. Go to Damascus. I'll show you what it's all about. You want, to, want people to suffer for your name? I'll show you how to suffer for my name. It's close. Father, I thank you. We love you, God. God, we know we were washed in the word, and we know we can never live up to it without your grace. God, we all know what we are without you. We know what we were before we came. We know the things we still struggle with. We know how human we still are. But God, we still desire to be changed in the image of Christ. Don't give up on your people, Father God. Infuse us with faith and grace. Let grace and mercy and faith be multiplied onto your children, Father God. Wash us afresh. Give us a fresh start. Fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit, Father God. Let us come face to face with you, God. Do not let us die in our silly traditions, Father God. Help us, God. From the bottom of my heart, I ask you to help everybody in this room with what they want to do. They want to love you and serve you. I know it, God. I know everybody in this room wants to serve you more. <coughs> God, help us to serve you. Break our hearts, God. Blind us for a day or two, three days a season if we have to. God, break us of all pride. That gets in our way, Father God. God, do whatever you have to do in Jesus' name.